Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. U.S. General Edward King, commander of all American armed forces on Bataan Peninsula in 1942, told his men, We have no further means of organized resistance. We are low on ammunition, have virtually no medical supplies, and our food is all but gone. The situation has become hopeless. You did not surrender. I ordered you to surrender. 78,000 U.S. and Filipino soldiers were put at the mercy of their Japanese imperial captors, including former Notre Dame fullback Mario Mazzonelli. Five years prior, Tonelli's 70-yard rush in the USC game had helped preserve a win for the Fighting Irish and Tonelli's spot in the history books. Now, he was part of the grueling 60-plus-mile Bataan death march and trying to navigate the hellish conditions his captors were subjecting him to. Holding on to the thoughts and memories of his family and his home, Tonelli would rely on every ounce of his experience and training as a collegiate athlete, to not win a football game, but to survive. Part two, run to daylight, next on The Missing Chapter. Welcome everybody to episode 18, run to daylight, part two. Before we get started here and talk about the uh, second half of Phil's episode from last week, we want to give a shout out to Utica Coffee Roasting Company yet again uh, for bringing us an amazing roast. Uh, The Let's see, chocolate amaretto, milk chocolate, cherry, almond. It is delightful. And I'll tell you, I don't know if we've really mentioned um, Utica Roasting and where they're located. They're located on Genesee Street in Utica, downtown Utica. Um, And they're also located in Clinton, New York. You got to check them out. Uh, Fantastic roasting company, which, of course, we have plugged since basically day one. Now, Phil, we're going back into part two here. I can tell just from my perspective, the excitement that you have for this part two you could argue is even more noticeable than part one. And part part one was fascinating, by the way. Thanks, Phil. And I'm really excited because we've tried now a variety of different formats. We had the, the shortened version uh, episodes called The Shorts. We did our chat a couple of weeks ago. And we really want to hear from you guys as to you know what, you, what you're enjoying the most. Um, just a reminder, we're available to you on Facebook, on Instagram, you can email us directly at the missing chapter podcast at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. I mean, that's one of the things we've been really stressing. Let us know what you like, what you'd like to hear, and even some things that that might not be working for you. We'd, we'd like to hear that as well. Yeah, we, we appreciate the feedback, as we always say. Uh, and we like to cater to some of our listeners' needs and wants. So I, I think it's and it's productive for us, too, because we kind of want to know where to maneuver the ship as we you know traverse these areas. So um, yeah, please email us. Please contact us on social media. Uh, I'm really excited for part two of Run to Daylight today. Uh, I think from start to finish, this has been one of my my most favorite episodes to research and compile information and kind of organize my thoughts on. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy what I have for you today following up last week's episodes. I am going to preface this episode by saying that there there is some more graphic in nature content that might be disturbing for younger listeners. It's not necessarily explicit or vulgar language. It's just more of the material that I'm presenting. So I do want people to be kind of aware of that. 
mm -hmm. uh, before I get started. Yeah, and we want to make sure and, and just be as transparent as possible because I know we have some younger listeners in our family, obviously. So we we would appreciate any content that we're listening to, podcast or otherwise, uh, to at least address that. So we, we want to give you guys a heads up. And for those uh, younger listeners that are listening, might be earmuffs time, right? Yeah, yeah. And and it's something we mentioned last week and, and early on, um, you'll, you'll know what I mean. During the remainder of his ordeal as a POW, Mario Tonelli would conceal his gold Notre Dame class ring from the eyes of his captors. A small metal soap dish became a, a hold safe for his cherished possession. And on the day that he nearly lost his life over his ring, Tonelli also recounted seeing really an especially repulsive image that he felt really summed up the brutality of the march and stayed with him every day after. The decapitated head of an American GI stuck on a bamboo spike alongside of the road covered with blowflies. And he really goes into great detail talking about how when he'd had his encounter with the Japanese lieutenant over his class ring, it, it was really a matter of um, adrenaline pulsating mm -hmm. through him. And once he'd had a chance to kind of digest what had happened, and then he saw that image, it really kind of centered on him just how fortunate he was. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, any, I think we've all experienced that moment where, as you said, the adrenaline rush is such where you, you kind of forget where you are at the moment. Right. And then once you come to the realization of what you just witnessed or experienced, it, it's, I can't imagine uh, the experience and, and the emotions that he was going through at the time that he came to and, and noticed what he had just experienced. No, I think that's exactly right, Phil. And, and by seeing that, it really brought him back to the to the time period and what was going on around him. By the time that Tonelli and the other prisoners had reached the rail yard at San Fernando, an estimated 700 Americans had perished of ill treatment along the way. The death rate, it's believed, a lot of this is based on estimates, was even higher for the 66,000 or so Filipinos. At all told, historians believe that one man died for every dozen paces during the Bataan Death March. Right. You got to say that again, for yeah. every dozen paces? One man died for every dozen paces or every dozen you know, steps during the Bataan Death March. That, that really yeah. puts things in perspective. It took Tonelli seven days to cover the nearly 60 miles from Maravelles to San Fernando. And when they arrived at the rail yard, the guards packed 100 prisoners at a time into the steel rail cars, which in the seething tropical heat of the Philippines at this, at this time in, in the year became virtual kilns. If they hadn't already been through enough, the cars transported them some 25 miles more to Capas and took several hours to do so. More men died during this trip and the survivors were rewarded with another eight mile march afterward to a converted Philippine army training ground referred to as Camp O'Donnell. Now, O'Donnell was filled with five times the number of men that, had, that it had been designed to hold. And as a result, disease, malnutrition were rampant, to say the least. Tanelli and the other prisoners spent their time performing slave labor, as well as digging graves and burying comrades. And after they arrived at Camp O'Donnell, the death rate amongst Americans nearly doubled. Wow. One out of every six prisoners there perished. By the middle of May 1942, the POWs were burying approximately 30 comrades a day. Oh, my God. That's, I, I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed here. That's kind of tough to wrap your we mind around. We throw these stats around, and it's just you have to stop and think. Um, and it was during this time, Phil, I came across this, this tidbit of information I think is really interesting. It was during this time of the Bataan campaign 
then an army chaplain named William Cummings actually coined this saying, which some of you might be familiar with. There are no atheists in foxholes. Right, right. And at night, uh, Tonelli recounts the loneliness, the darkness of the barracks. And that's really when he would he would remove his ring and pray for better days ahead. Now, Tonelli himself did not avoid the ailments that were inflicting on, on so many of his friends. During his time at Camp O'Donnell, he struggled with bouts of scurvy, beriberi, and even malaria. After seven weeks there, Tonelli was moved along uh, with a large amount of the remaining prisoners to another POW camp in Cabinetuan. The hope was that this camp would stabilize the death and actually decrease some of the disease that was actually even starting to alarm the Japanese. However, it seems as though the disease actually worsened. And after arriving at Cabinetuan, nearly 2,500 men would expire over the next six months, 740 in the month of June alone. So the question is, and one of the resonating themes between the last episode and this episode is really what about Tanelli's background as a star college athlete helped him endure the terror he's experiencing now in World War II? First, he'd enlisted in top physical condition. He'd been absolutely primed by the rigors and the years of working out at Notre Dame. Interestingly enough, more than 30 other former college ball players participated in the Bataan Death March, and 12 survived. It's almost a stretch, though, to assert that playing football was the key to Tonelli's survival to this point, but to endure what I've described thus far takes much more than just an athletic physique and a gridiron mentality. But I do think there's something to be said for the mutual protection groups that many of these men developed, much like teammates in a sport, especially when the psychological cruelties of the Japanese captivity tried to turn prisoner against prisoner. And the notion that your escape and survival might in turn result in the death of hundreds of other soldiers. These groups became clans within the camps and were crucial and in many ways essential. And even under the harshest conditions, military ranks still held firm. And what I mean by that is American officers within the prison still gave strict orders for no one to try and escape. One rainy morning at Cabinetuan, the American officer was distracted and three American soldiers who'd freshly arrived from a neighboring compound, unaware of the rules that had been set forth, saw an opportunity to escape and made a run for it. The other American prisoners saw them and ordered them to halt, but to no avail. And in the ensuing commotion, Tonelli tackled one of the potential escapees and brought him down with form that would have made his former coaches in South Bend proud. The Japanese guards confined the three men without food or water until sundown the following day when they were eventually executed. Tonelli, however, saved the lives of the other prisoners in his barracks with his quick thinking. In the fall of 1942, Tonelli was shipped again to another prison camp, this time on the larger island of Mindano at the southern end of the Philippine archipelago to help grow food for the Japanese army. Here, there was much more of an understanding that prisoners needed to be fed appropriately if they were to be expected to do hard labor. However, as these more lenient conditions often led to prisoner escapes, during Tonelli's time in Mindano, conditions became progressively harsher. By this time, however, the tide of the war in the Pacific was finally beginning to change, and momentum was squarely shifting to the Allies, as General Douglas MacArthur had begun to wage his island-hopping campaign. 
The Japanese were determined that POWs would not be freed, only to then take up arms against them at a later time. They began shipping thousands of captives back to the home islands and occupied Manchuria to perform labor in factories and in mines. The men made the passage under horrific conditions, and in unmarked ships over the treacherous seas north and west of the Philippines, the Allies now ruled and patrolled. They became easy targets for the Allies. American prisoners who had endured so much now faced a reality that might involve being sunk by their own ships. Having survived the death march, multiple relocations under hellish conditions to a variety of different camps, Tanelli was now faced with one of the worst experiences he had to endure to this point. In the bow of a captured merchant vessel called the Canadian Inventor, Tanelli and his fellow prisoners were held in complete darkness on storm-ridden seas for 62 days. Tonelli considered himself lucky not only because he had endured the conditions that the Japanese subjected him to, but also because many of the other transport vessels were sunk, again, by U.S. warships and submarines in the area. So as you're, as you're talking about this, the story just keeps getting worse and worse, obviously, for him. Right. Now, you mentioned something earlier that it wasn't just his physical prowess. It wasn't just his physical training, but mm -hmm. there's... Any any athlete will tell you there's there's such a mental aspect to any game, whatever whatever you know athletic uh, event you're participating in. How does someone endure such hardship like Tanelli? It's got to be more than just a mental game. It, he must have like you know you said he he takes his ring off and almost uses that as like uh, almost like an altar. You know what I mean? Is yeah. there what did you find in your research that really puts him in the situation? mentally strong enough to actually say that he felt lucky to be a survivor rather than, you know, wondering why this is happening to him. And, you know, Phil, I think that's a great question. And we talk about all these different time points in history where people do extraordinary things. I think that's one of the common themes that you really, I don't know if there's an answer to, but under such amazingly harsh, extraordinary conditions, A, what do people focus on in order to survive? Is it faith? Is it the image of family members that you're hoping to return to? Right. Is it a hatred towards the enemies who's inflicting this on you? And you don't want to give them, for lack of a better word, the pleasure of dying and, and, and seeing them achieve their objective? Is it just that humans resort to animal-like instincts in order to yeah. survive and you forget what's going on around you? I don't know. But I mean, you've seen it throughout history and you, you marvel at what people are able to endure and, and put themselves through. And I think you often ask yourself the question, under similar circumstances, what could I be capable of? Would I perform the same way? Now, I mean, personally, I hope that I never have to find that out. But, you know, it's it's in the back of your mind as not only a historian, but as a father and, you know, a, a husband and a son, which is exactly what Tanelli and these other guys were. They were ordinary human beings yeah, I, put under extraordinary circumstances. I, I, I just marvel at the fact that you worded that so eloquently because that's exactly what I'm thinking. Is it a combination of all of those things you just mentioned? Is it one or two? Is it, you know, and, and to sit here and think about the experience that he had gone through really puts things in, in my own personal life in perspective. You know, the things we tend to complain about there's nothing in comparison to what, what this guy has gone through. And he talks about at this point, like I said, each step of the way is worse as the previous step. Thinking to himself, if I were to have died, I wish it had been early on. And, and I can remember reading about this with like, you know, people who'd 
done tours in Vietnam, yeah. people who'd endured lengthy stays in concentration camps, you reach a point where you don't want to hope. Mm. And you think to yourself, I've endured how many days of whatever these conditions are. I can't let myself die now. Right. The people yeah. who died early on are almost the fortunate ones because they didn't have to endure the days of whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but Tonelli, like I said, considered himself lucky at this point. Um, and and it's it's also interesting. Not many people died along the way. I mean, you think about sixty-two days. You're talking, you know, two months without sunlight, mm-hmm. with very little food and water, and having to survive. You know, your your country not sinking you along the way because you you're reminded you're still in a major war. But Tanelli arrives at a scrap metal plant near Toyama, Japan, in June of 1945, where he encounters his first true sign of hope since he began uh, the Bataan years earlier. At Chicago's DePaul Academy, and subsequently on every football jersey after that, including at the University of Notre Dame, the same number adorned Tanelli's uniforms. And here, prison officials presented workers with small patches with numbers that they were required to sew onto their caps. Tanelli was issued number 58, a sign too, too far coincidental for Tanelli. That's incredible. And he believed it was a sign that he was destined to survive and eventually return home. Once again, though, we go back to being an athlete. I think everyone can think back to their old high school jersey or the number that you grew up uh, you know, in admiration of. For me, it was 7 and 23, Mickey Mantle and Michael Jordan. And I, I, I wore those numbers all throughout, you know, all throughout my little league playing days and, and basketball playing days. And I wore 23 from, from my high school through my college career because of Michael Jordan. And so for that number to pop up in something like that, I can, I can totally relate to why that would mean so much. And I, I yeah. it means, it means a lot. You have a personal connection to a number, especially one that you've worn from your, you know, prep days all the way up through your college days, like you said, and with all the men that he's still working with, by coincidence, by chance, which he's not seeing. It's it's not by coincidence. Right, right. It's not by chance that that number 58 was issued to him. This was the sign. And this is what he was going to hang on to. And, and it was a symbol to him that he hadn't endured all of this for nothing, but he was going to survive and return home. W. Edwards Deming once wrote, the world is drowning in information, but slow in acquisition of knowledge. Help spread information by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook today. Thank you for listening to the Missing Chapter podcast with us, Phil Schaff and Phil Horander. Well, Phil, you left that first part with uh, a couple of cliffhangers for us. And I think the question I have as you went through this incredible story that just kind of included all sorts of elements, sports elements, uh, fear elements, you have... Uh, obviously historic elements, but now you're you're left with this element of hope. So once you've once you've kind of left that dangling out there for us, I guess my first question is: He obviously survives mm-hmm. because of that hope, because of that 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 ring that he's got, the the number fifty eight that he's got. But how do you go through something so physically taxing, so emotionally, spiritually taxing, and then just kind of transition into you know a normal life? Right. And I think that's a good question, Phil. And it's, you know, knowing what we know now about PTSD and in, in the, the years following Afghanistan and Iraq for our troops re- returning home and even, you know, back to Vietnam and what the our, our troops experienced there, we obviously weren't as aware of following World War II. Right. 
Um, so that's great questions. Does he survive and, and what life will he be returning to? So on the afternoon of August 15, 1945, Mario Tanelli and his fellow prisoners were instructed to completely stop their work. News of the U.S. destruction of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki began to trickle its way through the ranks. Days later, B-17s appeared in the airspace over their camp and began dropping drums of rations with parachutes, things like chocolate, condensed milk. Magazines with colorful cover covers of current events rained from the sky. And Tonelli had heeded the words of that Japanese alumnus of Southern Cal so many years ago and kept his Notre Dame ring hidden away. Looking at the ring now, Tonelli was immediately transported back to the grotto on campus and specifically to a father, John O'Hara, who would become a future cardinal, who had counseled him on the steps of the administrative building when he was stricken with homesickness his freshman year. At this moment and countless times afterwards, Tonelli would be confronted with a simple question. Why? Why had the Japanese lieutenant returned it to him? And why had, it, had his life been spared? Slightly more than one in every three men captured on Bataan returned home. Upon Tonelli's return to Chicago, he was much slighter. Uh, no longer did he resemble the chiseled football player. But he was reunited with his wife, Mary, as well as his parents at Chicago's Union Station. The years that followed saw Tonelli return to a short career in football, as well as him dabbling in politics, which he just developed a very strong disdain for. He spent a great deal of time in and out of hospitals, still dealing with the effects of malaria and an intestinal disorder he had contracted. Most of all, it was the depression that visited him from time to time that he struggled with the most. He wore his ring every day, and even at one point had a jeweler friend set a diamond in the onyx at his request. He at one point contemplated trying to contact the Japanese lieutenant, but assumed that he had been killed in battle. And with so many students of Japanese ancestry having attended USC during the 1930s, he figured it would have been you know, mostly impossible to right. do. Yeah. Mary passed away in 1984, and Mario Mazzatinelli joined her on January 7, 2003. Many of his teammates, fellow soldiers, and general admire, admirers reassembled on January 11th for a funeral mass that included a bagpipe, playing melody of Amazing Grace, America the Beautiful, and the Notre Dame Victory March. That's incredible. So yeah. it, it's all culminating together. I mean, right. And, you know, there was a great article um, that Sports Illustrated did on, on Tonelli, and it, it was published on January 27, 2003. And you know, we're, we're finishing, we're wrapping up two full episodes on this individual. I want to leave you with a quote that really stood out to me that I think it, it speaks volumes for the life that he lived, what he stood for, and really kind of echoes through, through where we are right now uh, as a country. And everyone was the same, Tonelli said. You know why? Because none of us had anything. All you had was your life, and you helped each other to keep that. The world is getting greedy, and we're getting greedy. It doesn't take a lot to make people happy if they don't have much. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Phil Schaff. And I'm Phil Hornder. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>